I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 13, 2023. Coming up, we consider what many people call fringe science, or even woo-woo science, with the co-founder of Boulder's Society for Scientific Exploration, Paul Sperry. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is the faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And that's Albert Einstein saying that. That's right. A good scientist is one that is open-minded enough. They don't automatically discount the non-physical clues and cues they might get. We begin by looking at some upcoming local events in mainstream science. The National Center for Atmospheric Research, also known as NCAR, is open for visitors once again. Throughout the pandemic, visitors could hike on the NCAR campus, which is located at the top of Table Mesa Drive in South Boulder. But going inside NCAR's iconic Anasazi-inspired buildings was not allowed. Visitors can tour inside once again to see exhibits that include a mini-tornado and what causes a hailstone to form. Also on display are the 1960s-era washing machine-style computers that launched the National Study of Atmosphere and Climate. Visitors can just drop in, but first check the NCAR website for visitor hours. Boulder's NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also is open once again for public tours. NOAA's mission is to better understand what drives an afternoon's haze, summer hurricanes, and our variable climate. Reservations are required for the weekly public tour NOAA offers on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. CU Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, also known as LASP, is now offering an art-in-residence program. Scientists and engineers at LASP have made careers studying solar physics, space physics, planetary science, and atmospheric science. LASP now invites artists, from painters and videographers to dancers and writers, to apply for their new artist-in-residence program. LASP will select three artists to shadow a scientist or engineer, to learn about the work done at LASP, and to produce artwork inspired by their time at LASP. The artist-in-residence will also collaborate with local schools. The project will culminate next year with an exhibition at the Boulder Public Library. Applications to this Artist-in-Residence program are due in July. We'll link to the application at howonearthradio.org. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. SSE is back. That was the email in my inbox last week. SSE is short for Boulder Society for Scientific Exploration. Nationwide, SSE has fans among scientists from leading universities. SSE discussions often look at fringe science, meaning not accepted by mainstream science. Sometimes fringe topics in science that were once considered kooky become widely accepted. Take plate tectonics. Take the germ theory of disease. Both of these, when first introduced, were considered crazy. 
Still, critics of SSE accuse the society of promoting pseudoscience. That is, using impressive jargon from scientists with impressive academic credentials to talk about things like UFOs and ESP as if these have been thoroughly validated through mainstream scientific methods, even if they have not. You can make your own assessment of Boulder's Society for Scientific Exploration on June 23rd at Boulder's Avalon Ballroom. The topic will be non-localness of consciousness with speaker Angie LaRue. Boulder's SSC website states that LaRue has been hired to find missing persons, record daily rituals of religions no longer practiced, view the use of artifacts in ancient times, and take people to other worlds through out-of-body trips. Is this kooky? Or is this science? To learn more, I talked with the co-founder of the Boulder Chapter for Scientific Exploration. His name is Paul Sperry. Paul, what is the proof that you are a scientist? What have you done in your life that is scientific? The proof of the scientist is more in how I think than what I've done. But if you want the traditional answer, it would be that I uh, have worked for the National Center for Atmospheric Research for 20 years and studied ozone layers and acid rain and various atmospheric phenomenon. And then I worked on the University of Colorado campus for another eight years uh, as executive director of an institute of 600. Called CERES. What does CERES stand for? Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences. That sounds pretty scientific. It's a long name, isn't it? It was a combination of professors and students, also NOAA employees. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So that's another scientific place. Uh, it is. What we're going to talk about is the group that you're with today, Paul Sperry, which is the Society for Scientific Exploration. There is a talk that's happening at the Avalon Ballroom. June 23rd. June 23rd, Avalon Ballroom. The organizers request that people reserve a space for the event. The person who's talking is Angie LaRue. She's talking about non-localness of consciousness. A lot of people might say that she's called a psychic. Is that fair to say? That might be a common term for the phenomenon. What would you call Angie LaRue? How would you describe what she does? I would say that people that don't have extended abilities beyond their five senses would label somebody else as being woo-woo or psychic, but that is not probably accurate. Uh, the fact is that she has certain abilities that she has had all her life that gives her insight that most of us in the mass consciousness do not share. What kind of abilities does she have that the average person might say are unusual? I think that'd be a question for her. But I will say that she has an uncommon clarity about her world. But I don't think that she would ever advertise herself as a psychic. She's actually more of a healer and somebody that helps other people to find their own answers. Now, is she someone that police departments have reached out to to say, somebody is lost, can you tell us where they are alive or if they're dead? I honestly don't know that for sure, but I will tell you that one of the people that I've worked with, PhD scientist, does do that kind of work for the Denver Police Department. And she, among three or four others, used to find things, and she asked, Does, do you ever find anything from what I give you? Because she wouldn't get feedback. And they uh, found, uh, I know of at least one body in the bottom of a lake, based on what she saw. So there's an example of what you want to call woo-woo. I would call uh, second sight, perhaps. 
second sight, is this because you're a friend of hers? Certainly not because she's a friend of mine, although she is. I don't think that it's lucky when you get the same result over and over again using those abilities. And that might be where this kind of science extends beyond typical science. What I'm saying here is that scientists are looking for the unknown, but most of them will look down a standard process that is accepted by anybody anywhere. Whereas some of the more difficult answers, ones that are not obvious, can be seen by certain ones that have abilities that can see. It might just be that you're a believer who can talk about this in scientific terms, but You would argue that there's a scientific process for figuring out whether there's something to this kind of thing or not? I wouldn't call it a scientific process, but one of my colleagues was pushing the boundary, looking at phenomenon that we cannot yet explain, and there are a lot of those. He could not get his answers on a new physics by using accepted techniques, and I suggested to him, why not try dowsing? to try to get an answer that might not be acceptable in published works and yet would be reproducible by numerous people on the same question. Let's go ahead and explain what dowsing is. Well, dowsing is more commonly known as like water dowsing, where you look for water. Is this where you take a stick that has two branches on it and then a pointy side, and you walk around until the stick points down, and that's where there might be water? That is the common explanation or description, but dowsing is simply using anything that reveals something that your subconscious knows, but your conscious does not. So that could be the stick you talked about, or the rod. It could be a pendulum. It could be uh, rubbing your fingers together. It could be leaning back and forth in front of the milk display at the grocery store to determine what kind of milk you want. Muscle testing is another way that you can get access to what you know at a deeper level where your body reveals to you through subtleties what your conscious mind does not yet know. A scientist is supposed to be analytic, and you're talking about intuition. A scientist, first of all, I don't know that I would say he's supposed to be that way, but most of them are, and therein lies the rigor. You do want to be organized, methodical, careful, and reproducible. But... Therein also is the problem of finding answers to the very difficult problems, is that if you do not accept anything beyond what anybody anywhere can reproduce, you are now limiting yourself to the lowest common denominator of an answer that might not give you the insight you need. Now, Paul Sperry, when we talked together about you coming in here on The Science Show, you sent me back a quote from Einstein. Do you know that quote well enough that you can say what it is? Oh, my. Um, Yeah. You're looking at your paper here. So she's uh, revealed I'm cheating here. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. Who said this? Einstein. I will tell you that many of our scientists in the last 200 years have been mystics to one degree or another. No question that de Broglie and Lord Kelvin and Tesla and others, I could give you a list of probably eight or nine, ten. Max Planck, the father of the Planck's constant in quantum physics, his quote is something like, I review or see all matter as a derivative of consciousness. In other words, 
all is energy and all is information. And when it solidifies and slows down and becomes matter, it still carries that consciousness of some degree. That's a lot to get one's mind around. It is, and that's one reason why being a good scientist is one that is open-minded enough that they don't automatically discount the non-physical clues and cues they might get. Now, on the other side of that, you also don't automatically embrace and accept the theory that's presented simply because of who is saying what the theory should be. In other words, you always leave some room for uncertainty on either end, and seek to find any means possible that corroborates where the answers are leading you. In other words, follow the data where it leads. Follow the data where it leads. People want to follow the leader. We all know about the echo chambers that happen on Facebook. Depending on who you are, you believe one echo chamber versus another. And we all know people who are deemed crazy, people who follow their intuition or say that they're following their intuition to a point that no one else can make sense of it. How do you take somebody who is an intuitive scientist, or says that they are, and gauge who they are compared to these other ways that people can say that they're outside of the norm? (laughs) Which question there do you want me to respond to here? First of all, I don't believe everything I think. Secondly, I would say when we look at an expert to help us to make a decision or decide what to believe in, it's often because we don't think we know enough about the topic, and so we want to find somebody to rely on. Where that does not work very well, it might be in the political realm, where we find the pundit that we like, and then we hear the message we want to hear, and that's the think tank, or what was the word you used? Echo chamber. Or we tend to listen to what reinforces what we want to believe. And therein lies part of the care that you need to have as a scientist, being able to sort out what you want to find or what you want to believe versus what you are finding. How does somebody who has an intuitive sense of what they're trying for, but they don't have the analytical pathway yet, how does somebody like that make sense of their intuitive data? Well, some of the people that have the additional abilities often do think they're not rational or they will discount their own ability. I think we're seeing a blossoming of ideas in the chaos of our current society where ideas are coming to fruition faster and people are coming, um, well, I'm been told don't use the word out of the closet, but coming out of their own privacy to look at things. Uh, an example of will be studies on near death. Up until, I don't know, last generation anyway, We didn't talk much about that, and people didn't speak about their experiences. Now that it's become acceptable to at least even talk about it, now people are coming out of the woodwork. I was in a conference on the IONS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies. My wife's on the board of that group, and there were hundreds of people. There were, I think, like nearly 200 that wanted to talk about it. Point being is they've had these near-death experiences, oftentimes by a crisis, but not always, where they have an experience they can't explain. Now that there's a forum where they can talk with each other, they can compare notes and they can see that maybe they're not crazy after all. When people compare notes at those conferences, do they find some similarities and some differences with the other people's observations? 
And the answer to that is yes, but I would do it with the caveat that it's not always. So many of our experiences, especially in the non-physical dream states or near-death experiences, you might shape what you experience by what your consciousness or your belief system would dictate. So I uh, know of a scientist that uh, had a near-death experience at NCAR, and he talked to me about how he went to the other side, and it was just beautiful, which is common. But he said, I could see every blade of grass. He said, how could that be? I didn't see it when I was there. And then he told me how he saw his Jesus. Well, if you're a Christian, that would uh, be affirming. But if you're a Muslim, it might not, or it might be that they would see their Allah. My point being is that we tend to see what we want to see or expect to see. And so there is a lot of commonality in what is experienced in the near-death experience. By the way, that's not what I would call science, but it is taking a scientific approach to looking at the evidence as it is presented by people that don't know each other and have nothing to gain by telling you. Well, I gather that you're thinking of getting these people together that all had their own double-blind N-of-one experience. Nobody else knew what their experience was. They get together and they talk about it, and they find that there are some similarities. That's kind of what's done if there's a scientific experiment where you make a spreadsheet and you start checking off what are the things that are similar and different about these lab animals or these people or these chemicals. Did they act consistently in this experiment or did they act inconsistently? First, I'll respond to your comment about double-blind. Double-blind would be the scientific standard for doing an experiment where you don't know the result, you don't know the samples, and you do it in such a way that you can't bias your own result consciously. Are you politely telling me that this was not a double-blind placebo to go to the near-death experience conference? I'm neither politely or impolitely saying that. I'm just simply saying that the anecdotal evidence is not a designed experiment. So when somebody has a near-death experiment, it wasn't designed, uh, at least by a scientist. I'm not a scientist, so I'm forgiving myself for even suggesting that it was double-blind. But you as a scientist, you see right away that that's a fallacy, trying to explain it scientifically like I did. Uh, I would cast off the word fallacy, but I would say that when you're looking at anecdotal data, you can't look at it in the same scientific manner because it's not been designed. But you can still look for correlations. You can see if something's related to something else, or is there a preponderance of information or reports that are very much alike. On the near-death experience, since we're using this example, there are a lot, but not all, that uh, describe a very similar kind of thing of going through a tunnel and speeding through it. Then I'll add that there are many explanations that are offered by the so-called experts on how that works. And it may be hallucinations or a release of DMT in the brain at the time of death and all kinds of things that you can try to explain it away. Well, I've uh, met and talked with Dr. Evan Alexander, who is a neurosurgeon, and he had all of the explanations when his clients would die and he would explain it to their families. And then he had a near-death experience where he was in a coma for a week. His brain activity stopped, and all his peers said, this guy is gone. And he had no way of thinking because there was no activity because of meningitis, I think. At any rate, he in his book, Proof of Heaven, I think, described uh, the nine, I believe, or so reasons that have been offered as to why that's not real. 
Then he said, I know this is not true because this is my experience. And, I, and he goes and he refutes all of his own explanations that he used to give as the surgeon. Point being is that he was as qualified as anybody to understand this. Now he can see it from another point of view, and he stopped doing the surgery and telling people about this instead. Paul Sperry, I'm hearing what to me is something that makes me hope this is true, which is something that a scientist has to be careful about. Once somebody really hopes something can be true, they can start to fudge their observations to make it even more true to themselves. They will tend to project what they want to believe and then interpret what their worldview is in light of what they hope is true. I hope that that's true from the standpoint of the death as well. Another one for your listeners, uh, if they haven't heard of it, is Jill Bolte-Taylor. She's, I think, a doctor as well. And she had the experience of having a stroke in her left brain to the degree that she watched her consciousness, her awareness, slip away to the point she couldn't even identify the numbers on a telephone to dial for help 911, and yet did. It's a 21-minute TED Talk, and it's worth watching whether you believe or not. (laughs) You know, we've mentioned these two people simply because they're known in the circles. You can find books by both of them, but there are hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people that have had similar experiences that you never hear about. And yet people will get a chance to hear about this on June 23rd if they want to go to your organization's special talk by the Reverend Angie LaRue, Non-Localness of Consciousness, which will be at the Avalon Ballroom. It's a big ballroom. Maybe it'll be empty. Maybe it'll be so full you want to reserve your seat in advance. First of all, there's plenty of seating. The last talk we had was on artificial intelligence, and we had 50 people. And the talk before that was by a local scientist who used to service the Hubble spacecraft. We ran into him at a grocery store and found out, you know, what do you do? Well, I service the Hubble. So that was John Grunsfeld, I think. Here we are out of the pandemic, and people are getting more accustomed to gathering for events like this. The number of people is not a measure of the success. If you have one person who hears this and changes their life, it's a worthwhile talk. I'm sure there will be 50. And I will say that this idea of consciousness of non-local, if you want to know, you know, what is that all about? Most people would assume that the brain and the mind are the same thing. There are increasing numbers of studies that indicate that the brain runs the body and the mind runs the brain. And they are not the same and that that consciousness can extend beyond the physical bounds of your body. And people who do remote viewing which means they get information from a not only a different place, but a different time. They can be given coordinates for latitude and longitude. They have no idea where they are and describe what is there. Paul Sperry, do you believe all this stuff? I've got a friend, Dr. Paul Smith, who sat in my living room until 2.30 in the morning talking about this stuff. He gave a talk to the uh, SSE on this. Uh, He used to do this work for the Department of Defense where they track Russian submarines. Now, would they do that if it didn't work? I don't know what the answer is to that either, because I can't use a scientific exploration of the Department of Defense to see how often they're right in what they do and how often they're wrong. You'll never get that information. But if you're always looking for an expert to calibrate and reinforce what you choose to accept, the fact that the DOD is doing this might be a good indication that there's something there. Possibly. Possibly. I think as a scientist, you need to do reproducible and double-blind studies to get the most 
rigorous analysis of what you're looking at, but you don't throw out the intuition or the ideas that you get. In fact, uh, I think it was uh, Isaac Asimov said, the most common statement made in discovery is not Eureka, but the words, that's odd. In other words, seeing something in your own results and not trying to tailor it to what you think it should be, but following those threads. I'll also say that a lot of scientists, uh, before they even start, they have an idea of where it's going to lead. And so it's often a case of trying to document, reinforce, and prove what you already have an idea about. Would you mind having us conclude today by reading that quote from Einstein once again? For the latecomers, here it is. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And that's Albert Einstein saying that. That's right. And uh, you can find quotes by Planck and Nikola Tesla and many others that are similarly inspiring and push the boundary from accepted uh, rigorous science. Paul Sperry, as a scientist who has been at NCAR and at Ceres at all of these scientific places, thank you for explaining why it's important to you to look at non-localness of consciousness. I didn't explain anything. I simply suggested where you too can look a little further in order to find your own answers. I'm Shelley Schlender. Paul Sperry is co-founder of the Boulder Chapter of the Society for Scientific Exploration, also known as SSE. Here in Boulder, the Society's next event features Angie LaRue speaking about non-localness of consciousness. The talk will take place June 23rd at Boulder's Avalon Ballroom. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Bella Bartok. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links to the topics we discussed today. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911 for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender.